Worthy Living. We are going to finish up 1 Thessalonians today. Oh, it's good. I am really enjoying 1 Thessalonians. Called to His kingdom and His glory. We're going to put the key verse up there and we're all going to read it out loud together. Are you ready? Get set. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says, We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For He called you to share in His kingdom and glory. So while we're reading that, my mind is wondering because in the DHC Essentials class this morning, Chaz was teaching about, uh, about salvation and how it's not about salvation just for us today, but it's salvation into the kingdom of God that he's called us to. So much bigger than just a moment of, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. It's this grand calling of us into God's kingdom. Oh, it's so good. Should have been Chaz's class. Anyway, here we go. I titled this morning, A Worthy Blessing. Everyone say, A Worthy Blessing. Good job. Scattered throughout Scripture are blessings that God the Father spoke over His people. There are also blessings in Scripture that were given by people, the patriarchs, typically in the Old Testament, who blessed their children or blessed their families or blessed their entire nation. Blessings, listen carefully if you're writing, you need to write this down. If you're not writing, you still need to write this down. This is good. Blessings always communicate the reality of God's work in His people and through His people. So whenever we're reading Scripture and we come across a blessing, it is almost always, if not always, I'm going to leave myself a half of a percent out there because there's going to be that one. Almost always whenever we come across a blessing in Scripture, it is about God communicating the, the reality of God's work in His people and through his people. So we, play, we pay a little special attention to God's blessings. Here in 1 Thessalonians, we just read our key verse for, for the study of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 12, where God called you to share in his kingdom and his what? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> he called us to share in his glory. It's really good. You should have come to DHC Essentials this morning. The verse that we just read, God called you to share in His kingdom and His, try it again, glory. Yeah. Who's at work there? God is who has called you to share into His kingdom and His glory. So in this final passage of 1 Thessalonians, Paul offers this prayer or this blessing for those who have placed their confidence in Jesus. It is a prayer or a blessing to rescue them from the coming judgment of God that we've talked about previously and to take them to heaven to live with our heavenly Father forever and ever. It is a blessing that should bolster our faith in God that He is at work within us to complete His holiness in us. Oh, man, there's so many good things going on here. 
Are you with me? Okay, so here we go. Hopefully you have your bulletin because I kind of outlined my message a little bit differently than I normally do. We're just going to do a worthy blessing and I'm going to make a point here in a minute. Okay, so I'm going to read this kind of slowly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 and 24 is where we're going to start. You don't have to read it out loud. I want you to listen and absorb while I read it. It's on the screen. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, he says, Now... Marking time in this whole conversation of explaining to the, to the Thessalonian people that, that you have the gospel and you've believed and Jesus is going to come back for the believers and those who are dead and those who are alive. What's he going to do? Oh my goodness. So next week we're starting 1 Thessalonians. He's going to resurrect the dead. He's going to rapture them all and take them to heaven with the Father. And then we, we learned earlier that the disaster is going to rain down on all those that are non-believers, right? Yeah. So he says, now that I've explained what is going to happen, may the God of peace make you holy in every way. And may your whole spirit and soul... And body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Verse 24, God will make this happen for he who calls you is faithful. Oh, so many good things going on in two verses here. Uh, so we're going to spend some time camping here. I'm going to take this phrase by phrase. Here we go. Number one, God is the God of peace. He says, Paul says, now may the God of peace, God's peace is not simply the absence of fighting. I know some of you think that whenever your kids are away from the house and it's quiet, that is, we have obtained peace. No. God's peace is the material and spiritual well-being that only God can provide for us. Did you get that? God's peace is the material and spiritual well-being that only God can provide for you and I. You, listen carefully, you are incapable of manufacturing peace in your own life. I know we spend a lot of our younger years, and for some of us our older years, Trying to, if I have the right job, I'll have peace in my life. If I make enough money, I'll have peace in my life. If I could marry the right person, I'd have peace in my life. If my kids would just behave, I would have peace in my life. If I had the right pickup truck, I'd have peace in my life. No. God is the God of peace. If you want peace, you have to go to the God of peace to get it. You cannot manufacture peace. God, because he's the God of peace, we see through from Genesis 1 through the end of Revelation, we see God, the God of peace, he pursues our redemption. God pursues our salvation because God prefers 
peace as opposed to chaos because God is a God of peace. Are you with me? How many of us prefer peace over chaos? Amen. So we should submit to the instruction of the God of peace. That's reasonable, right? Isn't that cool how God did that? He's brilliant. Some may reason that if God, Brent, this God of peace that you're talking about, if he really is the God of peace, then all he has to do is to forego judging the world. Just don't judge those people who are bad. Don't judge mankind. Don't hold individuals responsible for their sin. Instead, let sin just go uncontested. We do this at home sometimes. You pick your battles as a parent, right? Some things it's like, so he's sticking his finger in the light socket for the third time. Let it go. I'm tired of telling him to stop it. Should I have not done that? <laughs> there used to be three head and children. I'm kidding. That's not true. We let things go because you just get tired of dealing. If God wants peace, then stop calling out sin. Stop judging sin. Stop causing disaster to rain down on those who sin. That makes no sense. That makes no sense whatsoever because just like a parent should not become like a child in order to raise a child. A little parenting advice here as good as my Spanish. <laughs> Just like a parent should not become like a child in order to raise a child. See, that makes no sense. God should not become sinful like mankind in order to have peace with mankind. Sin is the problem that steals our peace. Well, we're trying to make enough money to create peace. It's sin that's causing the peace. So it doesn't matter how much money you have, sin, as long as it's present, is going to take away peace. Does that make sense? Sin necessarily causes chaos. It causes chaos in our relationships it causes chaos in our entire lives. So, if God chooses to ignore our sin, are you with me? If God was to choose to ignore your sin, then a peaceful relationship with God would become impossible. You can't have sin and a peaceful relationship with God. It doesn't work that way. So, because we have this paradox, and God wants to have a relationship with you, and He wants to have a peaceful relationship with you, God, in His infinite wisdom, calls you and I out of darkness into His marvelous light. Oh, good job. Y'all are going to preach this with me. God has a plan to pursue us, to work in us, to redeem us, to bring us to His peace. God calls us to repentance, to stop sinning. God calls us out of sin, sets us free from our sin-filled selves to His holiness so that you and I can live in a peaceful relationship with God the Father forever and ever. That's the short version. 
That's great though, isn't it? That's what God is at work doing because he is a God. He is the God of peace. And so he's working at making a peaceful relationship for you and God to exist in. He's at work in you. Now, here's kind of the caveat to all of this. God is motivated by his love for us, not his neediness of us. There's a difference. God does not need you to like him. Doesn't need it. But he loves us so much that he will pursue us. So, make no mistake, those who refuse to submit to the authority of God the Father, the God of peace, will not know the God of peace. They will know the God of judgment and disaster. We talked about this in 1 uh, Thessalonians chapter 5 earlier, where he tells us very clearly that God is going to come, and he's going to take away those who are believers, and he's going to rain down disaster. He says, uh, I believe it's in, in uh, it's chapter 5, I think verse 3, I'm guessing. Uh, he says, then disaster will fall on them. The God of peace is at work pursuing a peaceful relationship with you. But if you reject him, scripture is abundantly clear that disaster, chaos, will fall on them. So when we attempt peace in our relationships by appeasing the other person, you know, giving them what they think they want, does that make sense? It makes for weak kind of junior high, kind of silly relationships. Generally speaking, broadly in our culture, we have adopted this unhealthy, unbiblical philosophy in relationships that no confrontation is, better, is a better path to peace than respectful biblical confrontation. Got quiet up in here. <laughs> Generally speaking, we have adopted a philosophy that no confrontation of sin is better than peaceful, biblical, respectful confrontation of sin. The God of peace, this is what he does. Maybe we should uh, take a model our lives after him. The God of peace confronts our sin, right? In Scripture, we look into Scripture and he confronts our sin. And he offers to forgive us of our sins by the blood of Jesus and to set us free from our sins. That's a loving confrontation. The consequences of not repenting is the separation of the relationship and God's judgment and ultimately disaster. So likewise, peace comes into our relationships not when we ignore sin, Give you half a second to absorb that. Peace comes into our relationships, not when we ignore sin, but when we confront sin, when we forgive sin, and when we work with that other person to help them overcome that sin in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. The most kind and loving thing that we can do in relationships is to fight for peace. Ignoring sin 
is the most damaging thing that you can do. The most loving thing you can do is fight for peace. Confront sin, identify it, forgive it, be set free from it, and then peace comes. The worst thing you can do is to ignore the sin because God is the God of peace. God is at work in us to bring peace to your relationship with Him and to bring peace to all of the, those people that God has put into your lives. God did that. That's pretty cool, right? All right. Uh, it's not as cool as I thought it was, evidently, but it's very, very cool. All right, number two, here we go. God is at work to make us holy in every way. Verse 23, he says, Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. See how creative I am with my points. God is at work to make us holy in every way. A, a very literal translation of, of this phrase would be that God himself is at work to make you completely holy. Believers are already holy in the sense that they have been, a set, they have been set apart to Christ from the world. Does that make sense? We are saved. We're set apart from the world to Christ. We're made holy in that sense. But God is also at work to make us holy in our daily actions and attitudes. He is at work to make us holy as we share more completely in eternal life and less in this mundane life. Does that make sense? God is at work in you. Now, Paul has already explained this to us in 1 Thessalonians. I'm sticking to 1 Thessalonians because if we go back through all of Scripture, we could take weeks and weeks and weeks and talk about how God has defined how we should be living holy. But I'm just going to stick to 1 Thessalonians for the sake of time. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, I'm going to summarize. God wants us to control our bodies and not practice sexual sin like the godless do. As believers, we treat our bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit, and so we don't do sinful things with our bodies. God wants us to live in the character and the behavior of God, never harming or cheating fellow believers. This is how godless, how the godless people live, harming one another and cheating one another. Believers are set apart from that kind of behavior to behavior that is worthy of God's kingdom and glory. Yes! You see how that works? We don't live in sin and say, oh, I'm really living for the glory of God. No, you're not. Those two are, are opposed. No, that doesn't work. You're either living in sin and against the peace and the glory and the kingdom of God, or you're delivered from sin and you're living in God's peace for his kingdom and in his glory. And that's where God wants us. He doesn't pursue a relationship with us to make us miserable. He pursues a relationship with us so that we can participate in his kingdom and his glory and his eternal life. And it is wonderful and beautiful. Why wouldn't everybody want that? In chapter 4, verses 13, through, uh, 13 and 14, God wants us to grieve. He talks about how we grieve. He says, don't grieve like people who, do, don't, who don't believe in a God. He says, he wants us to grieve like people who understand that there is a physical resurrection of those who have placed their faith in Jesus as opposed to those people who have no faith in eternity whatsoever. God wants you to be holy 
in every way, in every way, because we, we read this, oh, God wants us to be holy in every way, but I want a few little things for myself that I like, right? And I will, I will give God 95%, but I want a little bit to be a little bit bad. God wants us to be holy in every way because your 5%, if you really are there, your, your little bit of selfishness, your little bit of sinfulness is directly at odds with God's peace and God's holiness. See, God wants your entire life to be at peace with Him. Well, I think I'd be at more peace if I had a little bit of sinful time. No, you wouldn't. If you want to be 100% at peace, then you need God to make holy 100% of your life, to make you holy in every way. There can't be peace with God when you're sinning. So, so, I mean, that puts a lot of pressure on us, right? Because you're sitting there thinking, oh, man, what did I do this week? What did I do this morning? (laughs) So... God is at work in us to get the sin out, to make you completely holy in every way so that you can have peace in every way. God's plan is brilliant. Number three, here we go. God wants us to remain blameless until Jesus returns. So not only does he want us to be holy in every way, but he wants us to stay blameless, to stay, to remain holy. Oh, this is so much work. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 says, uh, oh, we already read that. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Now, God wants to make us holy in our entire whole being. And then he, rem- he wants us to remain blameless in spirit and soul and body. And if there was something else, he would have listed it there. There's nothing left. Spirit, soul, and body. God has us all packaged together. He says, I want everything about you to be made holy like God is holy, and then to remain blameless, to not have any blemishes. So we're going to make you perfect, and we're going to keep you perfect. Oh, Brent, if you only knew me, you would know that God would have to be a majestic God to get me to be holy, let alone keep me holy. (laughs) Well, that's what God does. Paul's overriding purpose is that every aspect of the believer's existence may belong completely to God. Paul's purpose in writing this this, is that every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our existence may belong completely to God and be kept safe until the coming of Christ Watch this. Salvation is not God working in us one time and then that's the end. 
God begins the work of salvation with the forgiveness of our sins. And then he is at work continuing in our spirit, in our soul, in our bodies, until our Lord Jesus comes again to take his people home or you die. God is at work to bring you to salvation. It's not over then. He brings you to salvation and then his Holy Spirit in you is at work to make you holy and keep you blameless in your soul, in your spirit, and in your body. Are you with me? Forever. That's what they say in Sandlot. Being blameless before God is not a one-time event. It's not a Sunday event. It's not an event that happens in the church building. You know, because I've heard people in our congregation say things like, you can't say that on Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. Who cares what day it is? You can't do that. We're in God's house. What? This used to be a bar. If this is God's house, we have set the, the standard really low. Because the scripture tells us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God resides in us. So whether you're in this building or at C. Senor's, hallelujah, or at 7 to 11, the Holy Spirit is present with you and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and you treat your body as holy and you keep it blameless forever. Oh, that's good. That won't sell, but that's good. There's a difference. Blameless begins at salvation and continues until Jesus comes. Now, Satan, don't look around right now, but Satan and some of those critics in our lives, really, eyes forward, they love to find fault and accuse us of our sin. They are looking for some reason to tarnish the perfect salvation that God has provided for you and me. You and I must live blameless. So, we do not uh, give Satan. We live in a way so that we do not give Satan or others the opportunity to accuse us or to blame us for things that the Bible would say are sinful, for wrongdoing. We have a responsibility to God the Father, to our fellow believers, and to non-believers to live blamelessly. We take this seriously. Are you with me? Now, because of a discussion that we had in class this morning, this blamelessness comes after the forgiveness of sin. We are, salvation is easy. You believe in Jesus, you're saved. But the fruit of that is holiness and to stay blameless. Because whenever God saves us, he transforms us. So we're different. We act different. We talk different. Our attitude is different. So we live in a way that reflects the kingdom and the glory of God so that those around us, when they examine our lives, they see us and they say, there must be a God. No? I like the way you're looking at me because some of you are like, I don't think that people think that when they see me. 
I'm not being arrogant. I don't know, maybe that came across arrogant and you didn't understand what I was saying. Whenever people see the holiness of God in your life, when they see the eternal kingdom of God represented in the way you deal with friends and family and relatives and, and family and relatives and, and your coworkers, that when they see you interact with people and deal and have holy character, the character of God, they see that there must be a God because you live a supernatural, transcendent life. Oh, that's good, Brent. Yes, it is. Okay. Our consistency of faith, I've said this before, I pulled out an old quote because it's so good, it's worth bearing, uh, it bears saying again. Our consistency of faith, our consistent blameless life demonstrates God's glory in us. God is not looking for random acts of kindness. You see, we kind of sold out here many years ago with, I'm going to get saved, and I'm going to be nice every once in a while. No. God wants to make you holy in every way, and he wants to keep you blameless in how many ways? Every way. Yeah. God is not looking for random acts of love, random acts of kindness, random acts of godliness. No, he is looking for a whole entire character regeneration, a rebirth, John 3 tells us. God is expecting that our whole spirit, our whole soul, our whole body is kept blameless until our Lord Jesus comes again. Number four, number four. God is faithful to make this happen in you. God is faithful to make this happen in you. Verse 24 says, God will make this happen. For he, talking about who? God. For God, the God of peace, who calls you, is faithful. Now, what Paul doesn't do here that just seems obvious, and maybe it's just obvious in the reflection of myself, is that who is faithful here? And the contrast is that if God puts on me my own holiness, the responsibility of holiness, and the responsibility of blamelessness, Brent is not going to be faithful. <laughs> because inside of every one of us, the center of me is me. And me does not want to be holy. Me wants to be a little bit unholy. A whole bunch of words just went through my head. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what they were. Yeah. So we need a God who is faithful when we are unfaithful. We need a God who is a God of peace when we really would like to participate in a little chaos. Am I the only? Me and Larry, we're the only ones. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it. He's with me. He knows what I mean, you know? Every once in a while, you just want to create a little chaos. <laughs> we need a God who is powerful, who can be faithful when we don't want to be faithful. That's not in my text here, but we're going to keep going. One of the pictures that we have propagated in Christianity is an angry God waiting Looking for the opportunity to rain down disaster on evil, sin-filled people. All mankind, God's going to shake them off into hell. See ya, sucker. It's 
So we kind of, I, I think in some regards, in some groups of people, we've moved away from that. And uh, here again, generally speaking, uh, broadly speaking in Christianity in America, now that Christianity, quote, is no longer doing Christianity from Scripture. Did you understand what I'm saying? There's a lot of doing Christianity, but not from Scripture. Just people getting together and having what they call church, but the Scripture doesn't call their gathering church because there's no gospel. There's, there's no gospel. There's no holiness. There's no blamelessness. So now we're doing Christianity, quote, is no longer doing Christianity from Scripture, but we're doing it from liberal, sorry ladies, feminine philosophy. We swung. I mean, before it was sinners in the hands of an angry God who's going to flip them all in hell because they're sinners. We swung the other way, and I really do think that the feminist movement had a lot to do with uh, a lot of influence on, on our theology, unfortunately. So we swung to the opposite end of the spectrum, and now God is no longer an angry God. He's a permissive God. He excuses sin. He becomes a doormat. He loves all people the same, regardless of their rebellion against him. I chose those words very carefully, okay? Regardless of their rebellion against them. He would never harm anyone. He would never harm any kitties. He loves everyone. And if you're hurting, he has a boo-boo blanket for you. And he's there to comfort you in your sin. So here's the beauty of Scripture. God is not angrily waiting for you to fail. Verse 23 told us, the God of peace is working to make you holy in every way possible. He's not waiting for you to fail. He's actively working to perfect you. Did you get that? That's a big deal. Because not only, uh, God not only uh, requires us to be completely holy as He is holy, but He has made every provision for us to be holy through the inner working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He begins the work with the blood of Jesus washing away the penalty for our sins. He continues that work with the Holy Spirit being present in our lives. Yes, God requires complete perfection in His children, but He takes that work upon Himself to perfect a life in us that is worthy of His kingdom and His glory. Hmm. You are going to hell unless God works in you. And everything in Scripture says that God is working in you. Is that good? Okay, good. I thought that I lost you there for a second. Holy moly. Uh, Philippians 1.6, he says, I am certain that God, the God of peace, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. He's a faithful God. 
He has begun a work, and he is faithful because he's God. He's faithful, and he's strong. He's powerful. He's capable of finishing the work that has begun, that he, that he has begun in you. Like, oh, oh, Britt, you don't know how many times I failed. We keep our faith in Jesus. You don't know how much I've messed up. That's perfectly fine. You keep your, your eyes fixed, on my, fixed upon Jesus because he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. See, I'm not just making this up. This is all over Scripture. We want to take it upon ourselves and bear the burden of our own peace and our own salvation. And God says, no, surrender everything to me and I'll redeem everything. Ah, God, I would really like to make a deal and surrender 95% and I'll keep the 5%. And he says, you can keep the 5% and it's going to make you miserable. And when I come back to wreak havoc upon this world, you're going to be there. I need all of you. All your soul, all your spirit, all your body. Here is why I titled this A Worthy Blessing. Because without God at work to make you holy, without God to keep you blameless, you will never live a life worthy of God's kingdom and glory. In these two verses, we see how completely dependent you and I are upon God. Did you hear me? Oh, Brent, I'm going to work this out. I'm going to fix this problem in my family, in my life, in my job. I've got this. In these two verses, we see how completely, entirely, we are dependent upon God to bring peace and holiness and blamelessness into our lives. God is who blesses us to live worthy of himself. That would make a good t-shirt. Our faith in God is never about what we can do now that we have God. Did you follow that? Our faith in God is never about what we can do now that we have God. Our faith in God is what God will do now that he has us. Big difference. God is the one who is faithful to make all of these things happen in you. Now, that's kind of the end of the passage, and and what's left is final instructions, okay? So I'm going to do final instructions, and by the way, we're headed for prayer time. I had a, that's a taco, by the way. You know, when you're typing and you mess up, that's a typo. When you're talking and you mess up, that's a taco. Anybody all of a sudden hungry? All right, moving along. Hey, Oren, good morning. Good worship. Final instructions. I feel like uh, Oren's putting a little pressure on me. Verse 25, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a sacred kiss, regardless of the fact that that Paul was God's man. Paul completely understood the importance of the believers praying for him. So here in the closing of his letters, the last things that he wants to be on the minds of the people who are hearing this and reading this, he says, don't forget to pray for us. Pray for one another. Pray for your life group. Pray for those teaching our classes. Pray for all of those who volunteer around the church. 
Pray for our leadership team. Pray for those who are sick or have a sickness in their family. Pray for those believers who worship in other congregations. Do you know that Desert Heights is not the only church that's going to go to heaven? We should pray for our brothers and sisters that worship at other locations. That's a novel thought, huh? <laughs> pray for the other believers in the body of Christ. We're all going to go to heaven together. We're all going to worship before the throne of God together one day. We might as well start now. This whole uh, greet all brothers and sisters with a sacred kiss. It just worked out since you were up here. I'm sorry. <laughs> Orrin gets nervous real easy, but I'll tell you something about Orrin. He likes to do that to other people. He likes to do things to make other people uncomfortable, don't you? I'm preaching. Don't distract me. Okay. It's a cultural thing, okay? Here's the principle. The principle is greet your fellow believers affectionately. Affectionately. Now, unfortunately, we live in this uh, homophobic world where we don't want to show any affection to anybody lest it be misunderstood, misinterpreted. Uh, and, and so what, what has happened is we've taken a sinful thing and, and let it, allowed it to influence God's holiness in the body of Christ. The church should be modeling appropriate love. The church should be modeling appropriate affection. The church should be modeling this, not running from it. Why? When we serve the God of peace, who is always faithful, why would we be so fearful that some weird social thing is going to scare us to death? No. <laughs> Are you nervous? <laughs> Inappropriate. <laughs> I'm kidding. Because Oren can take it. Greet one another affectionately. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm having a hard time focusing on my notes now. Let all the onlookers know that you love one another. Now, here's the contrast. is I've been in situation, situations, and you have too, where Christians have acted really snotty to other believers. And I just I want to address this because if you do that, you need to stop it. Well, you don't know what they did to me. You know what? You sinned against Christ, and he loves you. He died for you. So if a fellow believer <clears throat> took your parking spot, took your favorite chair, took your coffee cup, you know what? Greet them affectionately and get over your silly sinfulness, okay? We're in this together, so if someone greets you, you be kind to them. You show the love of God to them. Are you with me? So if I greet you and you turn your back on me, I may punch you in the back of the neck. <laughs> I'm kidding. I won't. I'll use you as a sermon illustration on Sunday morning. 1 Thessalonians 5, 27. I got to finish up here because we're going to pray here in a few minutes. I command you, verse 27, he says, I command you in the name of the Lord to read this letter to all the brothers and sisters. While I'm reading that, I'm thinking, we have fun in church, and that's perfectly fine. I, I hope that other people will... Appreciate that we have fun. I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Lord, to read this letter to all the brothers and sisters. Now, it's taken us about three months, uh, but we have read this entire letter of 1 Thessalonians here in the presence of all the believers, because that's what the Bible says to do. 
you've heard the word of the Lord because we read the word of the Lord. Now, I think that's really cool, and I hope that this whole series has been beneficial to your own spiritual growth. One last blessing, verse 28. Paul says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, you can take that and run with that. Paul the Apostle, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, being inspired by God himself, says, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the grace that, of Jesus that gave his life for you, be with you. That is the grace that you and I possess and have to share with other believers. That's the grace that you and I have that we possess and we can share with people who have no hope. We're here to have the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those words are all so weighted. I mean, Christ, Old Testament Messiah, God's perfection of salvation fulfilled in the New Testament. And we have his grace present in us to share. I hope that you will find someone in your network of relationships who does not know the hope that you have in Jesus and you will share this hope of peace and holiness and blamelessness with. It is your message to receive and to give away. Isn't that cool? God did that. It's our message of hope to give to other people. So I'm going to pray, I'm going to close, but I hope that over the next week or two, that in the back of your mind, you're thinking about you have an eternal hope that you can share with other people. You have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that you can share with one another. Let's bow our heads together. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this letter to the Thessalonians that gives us Lots of instructions about just how to live a practical, everyday life that is worthy of your calling us into your kingdom and to your glory. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be ever-present in every aspect of our lives, that when we are tempted by our sinful nature, that your Holy Spirit will speak to us and say, no, don't sin, live holy, remain blameless. Father, we thank you that you are at work in us. We keep our eyes fixed upon you that you will continue to faithfully complete the work that you have begun in us. And Lord, finally, I pray that you would make us a light in a dark world. Help us to live in a way that so glorifies you that those around us would recognize that there must be a God that they can put their hope in that they can put their trust in, that they can be saved by, and that they can know peace and eternal life through. Father, we just love you. We glorify you. We give you praise because you are a mighty, a magnificent, a wonderful, and an awesome God in our lives, in our families, in our church. Lord, be glorified in every aspect of our lives. Bless your people. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.